You know, we said, I said just a moment ago that we were praying where we are, uh, particularly around that issue of fear and our circumstances surrounding us. If, you, if you've been in a place where you're trusting God and you're saying, God, I, I want you to move and you've prayed, but you'd still love people to pray about the circumstances that you're in, then do come at the end of the service because we'd love to pray with you. We're believing that God wants to break through in people's lives today. And so do come forward. If you, if you want to, people will be available to pray, uh, particularly around that. Uh, last week, we were looking at, if you were here, uh, the gospel, the simple gospel that Jesus died for our sin, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he appeared. That's the message of the gospel we were looking at last week. And I want to, just around this theme still, why the gospel is still good news, just unpack that a little bit more and talk more about that today. Uh, because I want to just say today that the gospel isn't just good news because it's good news. I want to specifically hone in on the thought that the gospel is good news because it's true. It's true. And I want to talk about the truth of the good news of Jesus Christ today. Is that okay with you? If it's not, that's where I'm going. Um, so tough. Um, no. But that's what I want to see. And I just want to pray that God would, I know we've done a lot of praying today, but it's always good to come into God's presence to, say, to admit our humility before God and our dependence on him. So as we open the word, of God together. I want to pray for us. Lord, I pray that as we look into your word, as we look at the gospel, as we look at the things of Jesus, that you would help us to see what you're saying to us today. Lord, I've prepared some thoughts and they're based on your word, but actually we want to be hearing from you and have a sense of you speaking your scripture into our hearts and into our lives through revelation. So I pray that you'd reveal yourself to us today in Jesus' name. Amen. I believe that the gospel is good news because it's true and that truth is reflected in people's lives across the world. It's a fact that thousands of people today will give their lives to Jesus. Thousands of people around the world today will say yes to Jesus for the very first time. And that's really exciting. People are saying, yes, I believe that Jesus died for my sin, that he rose, that, that, he, sorry, that he died for my sin, was buried, that he rose and that he appeared to people and that that is transformational for me. There's a verse which says this in Romans 6, 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. If you're not sure which category you fit in, well, if you're not Jewish, you're a Gentile. If you're not a Gentile, you're Jewish. You're one or the other. And Paul's saying it, the gospel is powerful enough to bring salvation to all people. The power of God. What a wonderful scripture. We're seeing today people getting healed uh, spiritually, uh, physically. We're seeing God do amazing things. And, and we long to see more and more of that at work amongst our lives. We long to see more, just like the, we read in the Gospels and the Book of Acts in the early church and on into the rest of the New Testament. We long to see God at work in that same way. And we are seeing that. Uh, but we just want to see God do more amongst us. That's the cry of our heart, that he would do more. The gospel is powerful because it's true. And, and I think if we begin to struggle with the concept of how true the gospel is, we can doubt that the gospel's true. And if we doubt the gospel's true, we can become ashamed of the gospel because we doubt it's true. So we're not confident in proclaiming it. We're not confident in living it. We're not confident in applying it to our lives. We're not confident when, when people challenge us on the gospel. And I want to address that today. 
and talk about the, the significance of the gospel being true in our lives today. So, firstly, the gospel is true for everyone. The good news is true for everyone. That gospel that is about Jesus Christ and his work and what God wants to do, we can base our lives on it. And I believe that everybody can base their lives on it. I don't believe that Jesus came just to die for a few, but that he died for the world. God loved the world so much that he sent Jesus to die. Now, not everybody chooses Jesus. Not everyone says yes to him. Not everyone's awakened to the revelation that Jesus is who he says he is, but still the power of the cross is sufficient for the sin of the world. There's nobody that, whose sin is too great for what Jesus has done. And it's true for all. Now, as that means that we don't just have a responsibility to say yes to Jesus, but also to share him. Brian was talking earlier and encouraging us about sharing Christ, sharing our faith with other people, and that's wonderful and true, and that's what we should be doing. Um, but when we do that, we discover not everyone thinks as we do. We discover when we share our faith that there are actually several different responses to that. And there's the first response, which I've, uh, these aren't in any particular order, but there's a, a response which is where people disagree with the facts of our message the content of our message. And I, I don't think this happens very often, but it does happen that people can disagree with what we're saying because of the f- content. Or people disagree with the implications of the gospel. So what it means for our lives. So they may not disagree with the content, but they may disagree with what it means. And I think that's perhaps a bit more common. That's when people say, well, thank you for sharing your facts with me. That's true for you, but it's not true for me. That's your revelation, your truth, and it's not mine. And that's an interesting one, and we'll come back to that in a moment. And thirdly, I think this is more common, people don't really engage with the truth that we might be sharing or living in. People deflect by saying, "But, but what about? How can when there's suffering and when there's problems? And, and, And that's meaningful still. People are asking often out of real pain. But, but to ignore fact and go, but what about, doesn't actually deal with the facts themselves. It just pushes them to one side and says, but what about this? And now, I don't respond to that question very well, if I'm honest, because I tend to start going into an academic answer for why my facts are true and, and to def- kind of answer and debate the issues that are being presented to me, but that's not actually what's happening. And I've missed it so often. Because I get caught up with trying to answer the question when actually the question demands more questions. The question, but what about suffering? What about this? What about that? Demands me to say, tell me what you mean. Just, just unpack that for me. What's, why do you have that concern? And then to encourage someone to share their story and what's going on to encourage people to open up and talk. Because I'm, I'm, just by coming back to facts, I'm showing I'm not interested in what they're sharing. And there, there's something there in this, but what about, that might possibly just mean that someone's thought about this, but they've got an issue they can't resolve. And it's worth me just finding out what that is. As I'm sharing, discovering. Uh, what's going on? Why, why would you say that you're not convinced because of this, this, and this? If the gospel is true, it has to be true for everybody. That, that common response of, well, that's nice for you, but it's not true for me. Now, we can laugh about this, 
Um, I think it's a, a flawed premise. There's a Christian website which you can waste hours on, and actually some of the stuff isn't particularly helpful, but it's a satirical website, um, and they publish some fr- funny articles. They're, they're not true, um, but they just prod you where it's quite uncomfortable. So they produced this article which says, Feelings now acceptable as answers to maths problems. That's an American site, hence the math problem, uh, not math. But this is a, a, story, a fictitious story, not Donald Trump's fake news that he keeps going on about, but this is obviously satirical. Uh, and, and it's just tapping into this thought that people treat truth in very different ways. And, and it, uh, through the article, it's talking about how the examination board are now accepting people's feelings as, tr- as true answers to mathematical problems in maths exams. And, and there's one line which says this, Who are we to tell anyone that their own mathematical truth is wrong? And we laugh and we chuckle and we go, yeah, 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 we get that. That's, that's funny because obviously 2 plus 2 equals 4 when you're doing basic maths and you can't just go, well, I feel like it's 7. You know, I just feel like that's just the way I am. You, you just can't do that. But actually, and we think this is quite a modern issue, that it's quite a modern conundrum that people are defining truth by how we feel, that it's relative and, and you know, somehow people have moved away. But actually... We find this in the Gospels in John 18. This is Jesus and Pilate, the Roman leader of Judea at the time, talking. And and there's a conversation that's going on. Pilate has a couple of conversations with Jesus, and this is one of them. And and I've I've got some snippets then. Uh, You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you say I'm a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What's truth? Retorted Pilate. It's the same question, going back 2,000 years that people have been asking and said, well, what's true for you might not be true for me. It's an interesting one. Uh, But actually, I think it's, well, it's it's either true or it's not. Uh, And I can understand that people can draw different conclusions from the evidence. I get that. But actually, there is going to be some evidence we're looking at today, which I, I don't think you can just say, well, well, it's, it's true for you, because there's actual stuff that happens. There's actual physical things that take place, and the gospel is not just based on opinion and thought. It's based on stuff that happens. Do you remember we spoke last week, and I, I shared that the, the gospel is that Jesus died for our sins, that he was buried, that he was raised from the dead, and that he appeared. Now, you could theoretically argue that, the died for our, that he died for our sins is, is an interpretation, but you've, you've got a physical fact that he died. You've got physical investigation around was he buried. You've got physical investigation around the evidence that he was raised and that he appeared. And so there's physical things that happened that are evidential that you can look at and say, did this take place? If it did, you then need to draw some conclusions from that. You can ignore them and say, well, that's just nice. Thank you, I don't believe that. But, but that's okay until you actually look at the evidence. And what I want to encourage us today is that with the truth of the evidence that we see, that the gospel message is true. And if people don't want to hear, and, and if you've begun to doubt it, it's time to look again what, what actually happened to gain strength and truth from, and, and confidence in the truth of the gospel. Let me just uh, get on to this. I believe that the gospel is true for everyone because of this. Because Jesus is treated as God in the New Testament. It's it's not 
just something that you can go, well, it's nice for a, a couple of people. But based on the evidence, J- Jesus is treated as God in the New Testament. We've got a couple of verses here on the screen. They, they climbed into the boat. The wind died down. Those who were in the boat worshipped him. This is the disciples saying, truly, you are the Son of God. Now, the Bible is very clear on who deserves worship and who doesn't. Very clear. There's no question. Only God deserves worship. And yet here we've got the disciples giving worship to Jesus. Uh, Also in John, this is just one of many passages uh, that indicate this sort of thing. It says, in the beginning was the Word talking about Jesus, and that Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is treated as God in the New Testament. Jesus also makes some pretty audacious claims, some absolute claims that are not open to interpretation. He makes some definite statements that you can't just go, well, Jesus, that's nice, that's true for you. But it isn't true for me. He said this, very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. He's referencing an ancient name of God, Yahweh, I am that I am. He's talking, using very deliberate language to refer to a name that God gave himself. And Jesus is saying, before Abraham existed, I existed. I am. It's a powerful statement. Later on, he says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now, now it's very difficult to say, well, Jesus, that's nice for you, but, but it doesn't apply to me. I'm somehow exempt from that because Jesus is no one. Sounds fairly explicit, doesn't it? No one, I think, means no one. And he's saying, this is, this is the truth. This is how I see myself. So we're, we're stuck with a, an issue that we either need to believe Jesus or disbelieve him. And we talked a little bit about that last week. I won't go over that again. But Jesus is making some absolute claims. And Jesus also had a physical observable life, which we see in the Gospels. And there's historical evidence, observable, evidence-based accounts. And it's not just Christians who are writing this stuff. Jewish histori- There's a Jewish historian called Josephus who wrote about Jesus. And there's a Roman historian, Tacitus, who referred to Jesus and the Christians. And so these people are writing about the stuff that we're reading in the Gospels. There's evidence. There's a book, I think it was by Josh McDowell years ago. He wrote Evidence That Demands a Verdict. Uh, and the thought being that if you present evidence, if you lo- actually look at the Gospels and you look at the evidence, it demands that you, you make a response from your own life. Our faith in Jesus Christ is based on fact. And it's often been portrayed that that somehow if you're going to be a Christian, you've got to detach your brain. Because uh, you've got a choice. You can either be a science-based person or based on empirical evidence, or you can be a Christian based on floaty stuff. Uh, and that's the kind of divide that's presented to us. And, and there are some brilliant Christian scientists who have managed, shock horror, to hold on to the thought that Jesus Christ is Lord and that that truth is transformational and demands a response in our lives, but actually are doing evidence-based research all day long. Why? It's because the gospel message is also based in fact. It's not just made up. It's not just something that got invented by a group of early Christians. It's actually based in evidence and fact. It's historical. Paul writes this to just prove the point talking about the resurrection when there's some people in Corinth who didn't believe that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He says, if Christ had not been raised, our preaching is useless and so is your faith. 
For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. It would be easy to destroy Christianity if only somebody could prove that Jesus wasn't raised from the dead. But you can't prove against what actually happened. And there's evidence. I've talked before about a guy called Lee Strobel who set out as a lawyer to, no, as a journalist, sorry, for a legal paper to try and destroy the, the message of the resurrection. His wife had become a Christian. It had wrecked his life because this woman he knew and loved and, and, and suddenly there was something else going on and she was kind of getting better. She was just improving in who she was and, uh, and he was seeing this and thinking, this is profoundly challenging to everything he believed. And so he set out to discover the truth of the gospel by destroying it. He, he worked through all the evidence he could amass as a legal journalist to try and write off the resurrection and disprove it because he knew that if he could disprove that, then the whole thing would have to crumble. And you know where I'm going with this because I'm a preacher and I'm telling you in church, so it's got to have a happy ending for me. Um, that he, Lee Strobel discovered that he couldn't write off the truth of the, of the gospel and he, he couldn't just discount it and he wrote, he's written book after book now from this revelation that he had that he was wrong. And it came by looking at evidence. And he realized that actually as he looked at evidence, the weight of evidence was against him. And he concluded, much like C.S. Lewis had before and others too, when they look at the evidence that it demands a verdict and the only verdict you can draw is that Jesus rose from the dead. Now you can do what you like with that. You can say, well, I'm going to discount that and live my life as if he didn't, but the fact that he did changes everything. Absolutely everything. This gospel is reliable. Uh, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 17 says this, all scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, to teach us what is true and to make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people for every good work. The purpose of this book, the Bible, isn't so that we can have Bible studies. It's not so that preachers can preach. It's not so that people can go to Bible college to study it. The purpose of this book is to point to, to the one who it's about. It's to, point, it's to point to Jesus. It's to point to God. It's to point to his purposes in the world. The point of this book is to point upwards to him. And sometimes we can get a bit stuck in, in, in devouring books about this book and devouring courses about courses about books about this book. And we miss the point that actually it's to point to Jesus. It's to point to him. And, and, and yet this, this book is, is an easy one, I suppose. It comes in for, 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 for a lot of assumptions that people can try and write off this thinking that they'll write off the one it points to. And I want to just encourage you with some simple truths about the Bible today. People have claimed to me that the writings of the Bible are inaccurate because they're written a long time after the events and there's disagreement between the copies that we've got and that we don't actually have the original one-off Bible that was written by God himself. Um, we don't have it. We've, we've, we've got copies of it. And they say that this kind of causes, calls into question how reliable this book is. Now, I've studied this for years. 
and politely. Those people don't actually know what they're talking about. Uh, and that's not a, a kind of a, to, to insult them, but it, it's coming out of a, a it's kind of when you, when you tell a, a myth uh, and it almost becomes accepted as the norm, when you actually tell the truth, you're, you sound like an idiot. Do you know what I mean? When, when, when the, the myth is that the Bible contains, has been passed on and, and it's got errors and it contradicts itself and, and there's all this kind of stuff going around, when it, that's what people believe, then actually when you say, no, actually I can show you that the Bible is really very accurate indeed. You sound like an absolute idiot, but it's the truth. And there's two things that people challenge. One is the transmission and one is the writing of it. So, so first let's look at the transmission of how we ended up with the Bible. Um, this, you, you may have seen this before. Um, I, I just want to work through. So, so just to, to preface this before I put it back up on the screen again, we don't have original copies of really old documents. We've got copies of copies. Or we've got copies of the original documents, of, of all sorts of historical documents. Why? Because they're written in such a way that they, they get destroyed. Unless it's from a culture where things are chiseled out of rock then you can find bits of rock that have chiseling in them. But generally speaking, with ancient documents, we have copies. Now, scholars treat these as accurate and reliable. And we're going to work from the top to the bottom on this. So Herodotus wrote a book called History. It's written in 488 to 428 BC. We're not quite sure, but that's roughly the period when. The very first copy we have of Herodotus' history is from 900 AD. So the difference is 1,300 years between when he wrote it and the earliest copy that we have, we've got eight copies of bits of Herodotus' history. And yet, people treat that as an accurate record of what Herodotus wrote in 488 BC. Tacitus, I mentioned him earlier, wrote a book called The Annals of Imperial Rome. It's a classic book. In fact, Penguin have included it in their classics for years. Um, he wrote it about 100 AD, so around the time of the closing of the New Testament. The earliest copy we've got is from 1100 AD. The time lapse is 1,000 years. We've got 20 copies, unless you buy the penguin ones from down the road, in which case there's a few more. But the ancient copies, we've got 20 of them. Uh, Caesar wrote the Gallic War and so on. You get the principle now. So there's, there's not, Basically, there's a long gap and not many copies, and yet we treat them as reliable. You get down to the bottom to the New Testament. The New Testament was written any time from 40-ish, that's quite early, but certainly from 50-ish AD up to at the very latest, about 100 AD. It's the very latest it could be written. Uh, actually, most scholars believe it's probably 20 years earlier than that, 10 years earlier than that. Uh, the earliest copies we've got are from around 100 to 130 AD. So within a few years, we've got bits of it. We've got full entire manuscripts of the whole thing from 350 in the right order and all the rest of it. And the reason there's a gap is because the New Testament wasn't written as one book. It was written as letters. So Paul's writing letters. Mark's writing a gospel. Matthew's writing a gospel. They didn't all get together and go, right, how can we write a convincing book that will convince everybody of what to do? They're writing out of response to what's happening in the church. And God's inspiring them. And so there's, there's the, kind of, the bits got collated later on. But early on, we've still got these very early copies in less than 90 years time lapse between the writing and the copies, and we've got 5,000 Greek ones, 10,000 Latin, 9,300 other ones, including Syriac and everything else. There's huge amounts of manuscript evidence to point to how reliable the transmission process of the Bible was. That's incredible, isn't it? Just to see the weight of evidence that's there. And, and, and no actual scholar can refute that. No scholar can say, do you know what, uh, that's written, and they don't. 
Scholarly people treat the biblical accounts as, as, a, as well preserved, well passed on. And there's occasionally some discrepancies between some of these copies. And, and actually the Bibles you carry are really honest. There's nothing to hide. They, the, the Bibles we, we use here and, and the ones you carry, they'll be honest. They've got little footnotes. And if there's a discrepancy, they'll tell you there's a, there's a discrepancy in the footnote. And you can see for yourself. And occasionally they'll have a little, little bit of information here that just says, well, the Hebrew manuscript says this and the Syriac one has a slightly different meaning of the word. And that's really helpful. So you can see for yourself, based on the Bible that you carry, what actually the original one said. The Bible's also a reliable portrayal. Now, it was common 100 years ago for people to say that the Bible wasn't accurate because of archaeology. So archaeologists had gone around the biblical lands and they dug stuff up and they discovered that things that the Bible talks about, they had no record of. And so when you're starting from a point that, well, the Bible is just a book based on faith and we're the scientists doing digging stuff and looking at stuff, your, your reference is, well, that's more likely to be wrong than we are. And so there, it was quite common to, to challenge the Bible and say, actually, the biblical record is not reliable. It's not accurate. It was thought, three different locations going across um, for three different things, and I'll tell you what these are. On the left, starting from the left, it was thought that the Hittites that the Bible talks about, fabulous name, were a legend. They didn't exist because they were a major power, but no record of their city or their, their uh, being or their records had ever been discovered until just over 100 years ago. And so uh, scholars assumed that the Bible was wrong when it spoke about the Hittites until in Turkey there was a, a city uncovered. And records were discovered. It was once claimed that there was no Assyrian king called Sargon in Isaiah 20 verse 1. That when the Bible talks about Sargon, we'd got it wrong. Because we had records of other Assyrian kings, but not Sargon. His name never mentioned, was never mentioned anywhere else. Until, until his palace was discovered in a place called Khorsabad in Iraq. And the very occurrence that's mentioned in Isaiah 20 of his capturing of a of a city, was recorded on the palace walls that they discovered. What's more, there was a, a steel, a, a, a piece of stone with stuff carved in it that actually mentions the capture that was being spoken about in the Bible. Until recently, apart from Tacitus and, and, and uh, Josephus and Philo, some writers that I mentioned earlier, there was no evidence that Pontius Pilate existed. And so some scholars even doubted that Pontius Pilate was real. There was nothing to tie the biblical account of this man into history other than a couple of people mentioning him. There was a thought that maybe they'd got the name wrong, that he was mixed up with somebody else, that it was confused until in 1961. An inscription was uncovered bearing the name of Pontius Pilate and after that, coins were discovered with his imprint on them. So in 1960, you'd have been an idiot for believing that Pontius Pilate existed. According to the Bible. Because there's no evidence. 1961 comes round. Well, you're right after all. Isn't it amazing? I've just got three. There's lots of others. But lots of occasions when you would have been counted as an idiot to hold out that perhaps the biblical record had been transmitted well and was accurate. Because surely discovery said something else. But it was just that we hadn't got there yet. Just that we hadn't got there yet. 
I've heard a, it's an old argument, um, but it's an interesting one just to talk about the sort of knowledge. And people say, well, God, you kind of this, these issues of faith don't exist or they're not real or God, God isn't real. And, and, and you can draw a, a great big circle and say, well, does this, uh, this circle represents the sum of all knowledge. This is everything we might ever know. Uh, and you can then ask the people who are saying, well, God definitely does exist because science has proved it. So, well, okay, well, how much, does, how much do we know so far out of the circle of everything that absolutely exists? Uh, and a really bold person might go, well, well, maybe this much. You know, maybe, maybe we know 10% of everything that might ever be known at the moment. Maybe we know 20%, but, but we don't know the whole amount. So then you just have to say, well, is it just possible that the bit you haven't discovered yet is actually the bit we're talking about yeah, out of everything that might be known? that actually that's the bit that we're talking about that actually does also have some historical veri- verifiability that we can say the Bible has been accurately passed on. And I think the Bible's actually, not just the Bible, but the Gospel's worth defending. I ended up, unusually for me, uh, chatting to some Jehovah's Witnesses th- this week. I happened to be in when the doorbell rang. Now, unusually for me, they stayed for a while. Um, and uh, we got into a discussion around the things of God and that was okay but it was sad because I, I started just asking well how did you get involved in this what, what happened what was it that that led you down this route of believing what you believe and and that was okay to listen to for a bit but then we got onto topics that they were considering important and I realized that even though we were discussing the Bible the gospel had got damaged that it had got lost somewhere. That, that they'd warped how they'd handled the Bible. And that was really sad for me because, not just because they disagreed with me, but because they were, had no assurance of salvation. No assurance that the gospel actually mattered now for them and that they could grab hold of it, that they were saved not because of the works they do, they couldn't earn their way to knowing anything about God, but they would just trust that God might one day look favorably on them. And that was sad, because that's not what the Bible teaches. And what happened was they've taken a few verses which are slightly obscure and read the rest of the Bible through their interpretation of these few verses. That's a dangerous thing to do, because they end up, mixing it around. And there's, there's different ways that the Bible and the message of the gospel gets attacked. And I want to look at these really quickly today. The first one is a well-meaning one. Uh, we do this sometimes ourselves. It's where you start off believing that something's true and you read a verse and it inspires you and you go, oh, that's, that's good, that's true. And then we pick something else and we add it to this bit that's, also, that's true. And we find another bit we like and we add it to that bit and we end up with a whole load of stuff that may possibly sometimes take us away from the truth because we've cherry-picked and added stuff together. Now, sometimes it's fine to do that. But there are occasions when you end up somewhere and you go, how did I get here? Believing this, when actually it's just that we've taken bits and we've put them all together when they didn't necessarily mean what we think they meant at the time. Or they didn't mean what we're using them to mean attached to this. And so we can end up in some difficult places. The church in Galatia had this when... They were challenged, and Paul's writing says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel that's no gospel. 
Evidently, some people are thrown you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. So Paul was teaching that you didn't need to be circumcised if you're a Christian, that Christ was enough, that you could come to faith and believe in him and that would be okay. And other people had come in and gone, well, yeah, but. And they'd put a theology together that kind of worked for them. And they'd ended up here saying that all Christians needed to be, or male Christians needed to be circumcised still. That, uh, and now, the starting point might have been okay, but they ended up somewhere that was quite dangerous. And Paul's having to write and say, you've lost the gospel in this. You've lost something, and you've actually ended up somewhere, even if they're well-meaning, where you've ended up isn't good. Secondly, the challenge can be that we end up being overly fanciful. This is where you take a verse or two or three that you really like, and you ignore the rest of the Bible, and you speculate on these two or three verses at the expense of everything else. And this is where we end up into all sorts of flights of fancy, which sound very exciting, but they've kind of lost the base, the the kind of basic bit of the gospel, that Jesus lived, that he died for sin, that he was buried, that he rose again, and that he appeared to people, and that we can live through him. We, We kind of end up somewhere up here, looking at this fascinating thing, and we've lost the truth. And And if ever you find people who have got some really profound teaching on some really unusual things, it's it's just possible that that's what's happened. I'm not saying it is, but it's just possible because there's a load of stuff in in, in the Bible that is actually up for grabs. It's up for debate. So when is Jesus coming back? And if someone tells you that they know, the only thing I know is that they're wrong, according to Jesus, because nobody knows. Now, Now, arguably, if if we sat down and we picked every date that could possibly happen into infinity, somebody's going to be right at one point because they're going to pick a date that, that actually matches the date Jesus is coming back. But, but there's stuff that we can get engaged in controversy about and it's not good, not good for us. So Paul writes to the church in Ephesus and Timothy's there and he says, stay there so you can make command certain people to stop teaching false doctrines and, and, or devoting themselves to myth. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. They do not know what they're talking about or what they so confidently affirm. If we're in a situation where people are discussing all sorts of stuff and yet not living it, that's what this is talking about. There's a a life to live following Jesus. And I'd rather have us be wrong on a few things but follow him than be right on everything and sit around discussing it all day and not doing anything in obedience to Christ. Because it's far better to take the truth of the gospel and falteringly go and say, Jesus can make a difference in your life and he's making a difference in mine. And even if you don't know when Jesus is coming back or or what we'll look like when we get our resurrected bodies or or, or whatever else, if you don't know the answers to some of the things, we're actually not meant to know either of those, but if you don't know these things, then it's okay to step out and trust him. A third thing that we can end up with is actually false teachers who are malicious. And Peter writes this, there are also false prophets among the people, just as there were false teachers among you, and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies. We've got to be on our guard to hold to the gospel, to hold to the word of God. Because sometimes we end up somewhere we didn't mean to get, sometimes we can be overly speculative, and sometimes we've just got false teaching. And so we need to hold to the gospel. Now all of that's great. And I said it's okay to be true and right and factually correct We can't leave it there. The gospel needs a response. It's okay believing what this says about Jesus. It's wonderful. It's right to do so, to believe that Jesus died for us and that he can set us free. 
But that demands a response. It's okay to believe that the early church believed this and lived it out and have got stuff to teach us from God's word. But it's got to impact our lives and it needs a response. And so if the gospel is true, it actually needs a response. And I just very quickly want to say three things about why it needs a response. It needs a response because it points to Jesus. This is written to point to him, John says. All this is written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And so that that believing you may have life in his name. It needs a response because it's a guide for living. I chose this verse earlier from the New Living Translation because I particularly like the practical way it deals with this. Uh, It's useful to teach us what's true and make us realize what's wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong and teaches us to do what's right. That's what the Word of God can do. The gospel can, can, can challenge us. It's a guide for how we should live. Thirdly, oh, I haven't got a verse for this one. Thirdly, the gospel challenges our familiarity and it faces the challenge of over-familiarity with it. I haven't got this text on the screen, but it was a non-Christian, a guy called Mahatma Gandhi, who you may have heard of. Um, Very significant in political history in India. Said this, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilizations to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-worn planet. So why don't we live like that? Why don't I live? I'm not pointing the finger. Why don't I live like that? Why, why do I live as this? This is a book that can gather dust on the shelf. That the gospel of Jesus Christ is an academic thought that informs my Sunday and my singing. But actually come Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, I've put it in a box again. This is a terrible cliche. It's an awful joke if it was trying to be one. So it's not a dad joke, it's, but it, there's a point in this. You remember Henry Ford said, you can have any car you like as long as it's black. Somebody has said, and please don't think I'm trying to make a joke here, but you can have any Bible you like as long as it's red. Okay, so it's a pun, but the point is, get into it. Read it. That's not the reason why we've got red Bibles in church either. Um, So, my encouragement to us today is that the gospel is true. That the gospel is still good news, not just because I believe it and I think it's changing my life. It's bigger than that. It's actually true. Jesus did die. He did rise from the dead. And that changes everything. The early Christians believed it and saw it. They wrote about it. Those documents have been passed on to us in an accurate and reliable way. They were reliable witnesses. They paid with their own lives, many of them, for the truths they wrote about. They weren't making it up. The price was too great for that. And we received this book. And the gospel is, is not this book. This is pointing to the one who was coming. You heard me say that earlier. So, so we've got this book which is a record of and as stories about and instructions and encouragement and, 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 and it's God teaching us how to live as a result of containing this gospel message. So what do we do? Well, read it. But let's hear the good news again. Let's live in the good news again. The gospel itself, I believe, is at stake. Not just in the arguments and discussions we have, but in our practice. And I suppose my question is this. 
It is true that Jesus died. The gospel is historically true. And the question isn't, is it historically true? The question is, how will we live now that we know that it's historically true? My encouragement to us is to reflect on the gospel. To respond to Jesus, the one that it's pointing to. To have confidence in the message and in the messenger. And to encourage others with the name of Christ. Because he's the only one who saves. I wonder if we can pray together.